0: We've got a picture up here that I want to show you. If you rolled by my house uh, July 14th, this would be a picture of what you would have seen from the street. My neighbor my neighbor decided in the middle of July, in 100 degree heat, under pine trees, under kindling, effectively, pine needles, on a windy day where the wind was blowing toward my house, to uh, burn and so that burn created a fire in his backyard about four feet from our fence that we share and about four more feet from our little cave, little house in the back, and about four feet from my daughter's little bunnies and about 15 feet from our house. That's what you would have seen. Um, I've never been through that before. My son and I were in uh, the kitchen and Samuel says, fire, and I look out the kitchen window And I see flames on the fence. I see a fire starting on our little shed (laughs) in the back. And it's in those moments, y'all. It's in those moments where you learn what you really value. What do you value in those moments? And ended up getting the kids out and going outside. And my wife, my wife was out there with um, a hose fanning the flame of this fire. The problem is in July, you have these pine trees that are 120 foot tall. And um, those pine trees are going up in smoke. And so I grab the hose, and I'm thinking all these thoughts through my head. What what are we going to salvage? What are we going to have left? Let me ask you the question. If you are in that position, what would you save? What would you save if there was a threat of a fire burning down all of your possessions? What would you save first and second and third? Fortunately for us, the Magnolia, volunteer Magnolia Fire Department came within about 10 minutes of getting a call and they said that um, within three or four more minutes our shed in the back would have been burnt and maybe even our house because our neighbor also had a detached garage that was right on our fence line and he would have lost that. We may even have lost our house. And so the next day we sent cookies or brownies. The ladies in my home sent brownies to the Magnolia Police <laughs> <laughs> Fire Department. And my neighbor and I had a little come to Jesus the next morning that began with, I want to be a good neighbor, but. We're, we're in good condition now, my neighbor and I. But in those moments, you find out what's important to you. When your house is burning, what do you do? What do you grab? What do you save? What do you not save? And in those moments also, in the, in, in the coming days after that, I, what I learned from that experience as well as how fast earthly treasure can burn up. How fleeting my things and my stuff really are. This morning we're going to talk about materialism. We're going to talk about greed, if you will. We're going to talk about the importance of not chasing after earthly treasure. Turn to James chapter 5 and we'll be in verses 1 through 6. We've been working our way through the book of James and in the last few weeks what we've seen We've seen that we shouldn't be playing God with um, other people's lives. We shouldn't be playing God with our own lives last week and our plans, the plans that we have. We ought to hold our plans open, as we learned last week. And today, we're going to look at something else. We ought not make gold, if you will, our God. Is gold your God? And better yet, how do you know if gold has become your God? And James is going to get right to the point, as James does, he doesn't pull any punches. Very often, as you read through the book of James, he gets stronger and more direct, and so we've got a very direct text this morning. But the great thing about this text, is he's going to give us four things. He's going to show us four ways in which we know if our hearts are bent toward greed or materialism. And he's specifically going to be speaking to the wealthy, rich, wicked landowner The wealthy, rich landowner of the day around Jerusalem. Remember, if you remember about James, most of the people in the church are not wealthy. Most of the people in the church are both persecuted and they are poor. And he's got some lessons to teach them. But there's also wealthy people in the church. And there are lessons and things to learn for them. So, James chapter 5, verse 1 through 6. Listen, this is super helpful for us. I know you may be sitting there and you may be saying, listen, I'm not rich. And I'm not a landowner, I don't have employees, so maybe this text doesn't apply to me. But when you think about the world economy, when you think about what it, it means to be rich in this world materially, if you look at the whole world, if, you, if you, your household income is over 30 grand, and you have more than one um, pair of socks and clothes and shoes, and you have running water and you don't have a dirt floor in your house, you are in the 2% wealthiest people on the planet. I know I know we live in America and there's a cost of living here I get that but you ought to see yourself in the category as you think about the world that we live in If you think about the world we live in we are the top two percent most of the people in the room here are the top two percent wealthiest people on the planet so there's much news for us here in this text there's also when you think about materialism and greed we often think about the rich and surely James is gonna talk to the rich Uh, or about the rich to the poor in his church. But the thing is, is that materialism, greed does not discriminate, does it? There can be just as much greed in our hearts and materialism in in our hearts, whether we are white collar or blue collar or no collar. So please, there is much for us to learn here. I've been having to deal with this in my own life this week, and now I get to give it to you. James chapter 5, 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl, for the miseries are coming upon you. Thanks, James. Encouraging text already. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and the corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who've mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous, innocent person. And he does not resist you. Four things. Four things for you to identify, pot- potentially identify in your heart. Greed and materialism. The first one is this, and it comes from verses 1 through 3. A greedy person stockpiles riches to stockpile riches. This is what you see in the first three verses. Look at it. Five one. it says, come now. He used that phrase back in verse 13 to talk to the business person that had his plan set. And now he's using it for the rich landowner over laborers. And he says, come now. Now, specifically, you rich. And he, and he doesn't give an out a way of repentance or a way out of this. He just says, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And this is why most commentators look at this text and say, you know, he's talking to this church that is mostly poor and persecuted. But he's talking about the unbelieving, wicked, wealthy. And you're going to find out more about this wicked wealthy and why judgment is already, from verse 1 on, seen in this text. Weep and howl, that's judgment language in the Scriptures. For the miseries that are coming, future that are coming upon you. And here's why. Your riches have rotted your garments and moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, look at these words, rotten, moth-eaten clothes, Gold and silver corroded or tarnished. We know that gold and silver don't corrode in that way, but from sitting there for so long and being unused that they are tarnished. They've been laid up. And the corrosion will be evidenced against you and it will eat your flesh like fire. Think about the picture of the fire. And he says this, You have laid up treasure in the last days. Laying up treasure, you see that in Scripture here, the idea of laying up treasure, is not investing in your 401k, rightfully so. It's not investing and saving for your kids for college. This is laying up treasure to accumulate and stockpile treasure. That's what's happening. That's who he's talking about. That's what's happening. You're just stockpiling to stockpile. You're accumulating to accumulate. And he says the last days, because really, if you look at the Scripture from the New Testament, from the time of Christ on We're living in the last days, and so the implication is time is short, and yet you're stockpiling all this stuff, and you don't even use it. I know none of us have clothes in our closet that we don't wear, but we certainly still need that maybe have become moth-eaten. You know that smell on moth-eaten clothes? And you go through when you're giving clothes away, and you're like, yeah, but I might need that. I'm sure none of this applies to any of us and what we stockpile. See, materialism and greed is just getting more stuff for the sake of getting more stuff. There's no heavenly tie to it. It's just accumulating to accumulate on the earth, but there's no heavenly tie to it. And here's the thing. I'm going to stop for a minute because anytime you talk about a subject like money, um, you have to do a few things. Money is not bad. Wealth is not bad. If you look at the scripture, I mean, there is... Jesus talks about money maybe more than anything else he talks about and wealth. Think about all the people in scripture who were wealthy. Abraham, the father of the nation Israel, he was wealthy. You think about Job before suffering and also even more so after after suffering. You think about Solomon. You come to the New Testament. Remember the tomb of the the tomb of Jesus where Jesus laid himself, where the man who laid Jesus in his tomb, Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man you know Paul was a rich man before he gave it all up? Barnabas was a rich man before he gave it all up. The lady Lydia in the book of Acts was a wealthy seller of purple goods. These are people who love Jesus. And so it's not a sin or it's not wrong to be wealthy. As a matter of fact, the Bible says all your wealth is a gift from God. James 2, right? James 2 says God gives all good gifts. If you look at the Psalms in Psalm chapter 10, I'm just giving you a big theology of this. The theology of money. It is God's blessing on your life to give you the things that you have. And sometimes we look at our things and we think about our things in terms of, I'm really smart and I worked really hard, so I got this. But in the end, you have to look at your life and go, God is the, ruler. God is the owner of a thousand cattle on a thousand hills, hills, and he gives the way he pleases. And so wealth and money is a good and gracious gift to God. The issue is not wealth. See, God is a generous God and He gives generously and He's given the treasure beyond all treasures in the person and work of His Son, Jesus, who is the ultimate treasure. And so when you think about money, you ought not think money bad, wealthy people bad, poor people good. That's not the way the Bible speaks about money, but when you come to the New Testament, like this text, there are warnings everywhere, aren't there? For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil and that's what James is hitting here. And so great warning in this. But there's no hitch on the hearse, right? There's no hitch on a hearse. When you die and you are taken, your body is taken to the burial ground, there is no hitch for your stuff on that hearse. You leave this world the way that you came in, according to Job. There's a story of a lady, a story of a lady who uh, lived in a neighborhood and she was often, older lady, was often caught asking neighbors, lived in a good neighborhood, she often caught at, asking neighbors for food. And the, one day, her family was gone. I don't think she had much family. And one day, um, they said, we haven't seen this lady in a while. And they found her in her house, dead of malnutrition. Of malnutrition. And then later on, what they f- found out is that she had over a million dollars in the bank. You know, a picture of stockpiling riches to your own destruction. That's a very vivid description of that. See, there's a difference There's a difference, though, between hoarding, right? And that's what's happening in this text. This is what James is talking about. He's talking about people who hoard and stockpile things just to hoard and stockpile things so they have more. There's a difference between that and investing in heavenly things. And that's the message, I think. I want to implore you to consider that take your things and be generous with them and be generous in ways that are tied to heaven. Things and ways in which the gospel can go forth to use your wealth in God-honoring ways. And the Bible has plenty of examples of that. But this issue of stockpiling, this issue of money, this issue of greed, it wrecks our lives. I don't know how many conversations with your spouse that you've had about money. Maybe it's a monthly conversation you have when the bills are due. I don't know what that conversation is like, but I can tell you this from counseling for a long time. One of the biggest ways in which people end up in a place where they get divorced is because of finances. And sometimes that's because there are two people, fallen people, that need Jesus in a marriage that are greedy. And they want to live at this level. And maybe they want to live at this level because they never had. And they want to give their family and themselves more. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. And yet, if that is the driver in your life and in your marriage, you're heading for trouble. I've watched it too many times. Marriages that crumble because we've got to keep up with the Joneses. And we've got to have this status and that status. And it's crippling. And in the end, it doesn't help your marriage and it doesn't help your kids as much as you want to give to your marriage and as much as you want to give to your kids. Again, nothing wrong with having wealth, nothing wrong with enjoying the good things of life. But what's your perspective? So a few questions to ask yourself because maybe you're saying, well, this doesn't at all apply to me. Questions I've been asking myself. Am I content with what I have until I get more? Ouch. Are you looking for money... Or wealth to buy you what God freely gives you. When God and gold come into conflict. Which one wins? Good questions to ask as you consider. Wealth and riches in your own life. Because the tendency of a materialistic greedy person is. I can't, I can't be generous. I can't be generous because I'm thinking so much about myself. Or I've put myself in so much debt. That I can't be generous to others. So. Stockpiling riches is the first thing that James unpacks for us. Listen, God is a generous God. And He gives so graciously to us and freely to us. And when you're changed by the gospel, or you're continuing to be changed by the gospel in your life, it ought to produce in us a generosity. A generosity to give toward what God wants us to give toward. So the means by which these people have gained so much is what though? They've stockpiled because of their wealth, but how do they gain more? Look at the text. Look at verse 4. How do they gain more? And what are they willing to do to gain more? Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says this. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept by fraud, are crying out against you. So here's what's going on. Wealthy, wicked landowner, accumulating wealth and riches for himself, for herself, how are they doing that? Not just by what they're gaining because of what they've earned, but also on the backs of the poor laborer that they're not paying. Back in that day, it looked a little different. So most of the people in James's church in Jerusalem were people who would go out every day and labor. And you get paid maybe once a month, or I don't know how often you get paid, but in that day, you got paid every day. At the end of the day, for the work that you had done, the work that was agreed upon, you got paid that day. And you got paid that day so you could go to the market right after you got off work and have enough money to buy food for your family for that day. And so the implication of this, this greed in the wealthy landowner is this, this family who's been working, enslaving to try to earn a living, can't have food on their table while you hoard riches. This is an evil, isn't it? The Bible speaks about this kind of evil. Withholding what is due because of greed for more. And effectively, they're double dipping, right? They're double dipping because they're making money off the work that the laborer does, but they're not paying the labor. So they're double dipping. Leviticus, I mean, all over the Bible, you, you, you hear these words in Scripture about um, services rendered. And here's your point. A greedy person is willing to cheat people out of services rendered to get more Leviticus chapter 19 verse 13 I think we have that text can we throw that up there Leviticus chapter 19 or maybe that's first Timothy there we go sorry small words in the back you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him the wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning because that family needed food in First Timothy chapter 5, verse 18, this is instruction for the church. In Leviticus, it's instruction toward loving your neighbor. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads on the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. And you see it in the Gospels too. Jesus speaks about laborers earning their wages, and, and people who employ other people needing to pay them what they worked for. And here's the result, though. Here's the result. This is really important. Here's the result. The people who are not getting paid, here's what they do. And this is so good and so right for us. What do they do? The people that were, in a sense, oppressed, what do they do? They first, they go to God, and they pray. They pray to the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is like praying. The idea in that is this phrase that we get for Lord of hosts, or this name for God, is God is a warrior God, and he has an angelic army who fights who judges rightly. And so God, the Lord of hosts, to pray and God, looks at, look at the text, it says God hears their prayers. He hears the prayer of those who are being cheated. And there's a lot of correlation to our world today, even 2,000 years later. The unfair trade in third world countries and laborers who put together the clothes that you and I wear and put together the goods and services In the first world, this happens in business as well. There's a great implication to this. The story of a single mom. single mom in a church and she goes to her pastor. single mom has three kids, goes to her pastor and says, you know, my boss, um, I have my job description and I'm doing my job. My my boss knows I'm a Christian and so I, I try to work really hard. But he knows that and I feel like He he not only underpays me, He makes me work way too much. And the pastor rightly said, listen, here's what we're going to do for a week. For a week, I want you to pray to the Lord of hosts that God might intervene. That God might intervene and do something. A, A week goes by and the lady comes rushing back to the pastor's office and saying, look, here's what happened. My boss got fired. And better than that, my boss not only got fired, but I got his position. We need to pray to the Lord of hosts. Are there ways and means by which in a just society that we should approach? A, a boss that we have? And and remember, when you think about this, if you think about your own employment, you may think you deserve more, but if you've agreed to this, that's different. Right? And that's a different conversation. But if there is cheating of people out of services rendered, the first thing that you need to do to, is, is to go... To the Lord of hosts and pray. And you pray that God would provide. Next week, we're going to talk a lot about the person who's been defrauded like this. And what the right response is. And also what the wrong response is. Because you and I live in a culture. and a time right now. Where people likely are oppressed. But the response could not find its place in the Bible. God is going to call. James is going to call his people and His audience, God is going to call His people in that time and our time to handle that kind of situation a certain way. And we'll see that teaser for next week. So there's really two angles of this, right? If you're an employer and you employ people, you should pay them a fair wage. Don't use them for extra profit to put in your pocket. If you're an employee, as I described There are places and ways to go. Maybe you need to go to your supervisor. Maybe you need to go to your boss if you've not had that conversation and say, I think I'm I'm, I'm working this much and you're paying me this much and here's my job description and here's what we agreed upon. And if that doesn't work, maybe you go uh, to your supervisor. So there's ways to do that. But the number one thing you've got to do is pray to God that he might see, that he might act on your behalf and be patient. So let me ask you generally though, as we think about defraudment? Are you generous with what God has given you? Do you know the tip wage in Texas is between $2.13 and $5.12? So, for example, a server that you go out to eat on a Friday night or a Sunday lunch, um, they make between $2.13 and $5.12 an hour because they get tips. Servers know this, but at least when I was back serving tables a long time ago, and I hope this has changed, I don't know this, this has changed, but when I started serving tables, do you know the time in which I had to work the most, and I didn't want to work? Sunday, lunch. And I didn't really understand why I was a new Christian, and I remember asking the other servers that I was serving with, why don't you want to work on Sunday at lunch? And they said, well, Christians... The people that go to church and learn about a generous God are the worst tippers out there. That gets pretty granular. That gets pretty down to the weeds of our lives. When people render a service to us, we of all people should be generous. And some of us say, well, I'm frugal. (laughs) I'm frugal. I'm really frugal. And I'm stewarding what God has given me. There's a fine line between between being frugal and being a good steward. And being Ebenezer Scrooge, right? There's a fine line between those things. You ought to be the most generous. The waiter, ought, you ought to leave, and the waiter go, I can't wait for that person to come back on Sunday lunch. Because they're generous with the work and service that we rendered today. We ought to be the most generous of people as Christians. Amen? Well, they stock, the greedy stockpile wealth, they get more wealth and get more things from. By, by cheating people, by defrauding people. But how do they live? That's the next question I would have. So, so they stockpile all this stuff, but how do they tend to live? That's your next point. The greedy person tends to live extravagantly. Look at the text in verse 5. It just spells it out right there. How do they live? Verse 5. You have lived on this earth, notice the focus on the earth, in luxury and in self indulgence, and look at the result and the judgment. This is heavy. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. See, it's a picture of a, of a cow grazing in a field. And what does the, the farmer do with the cow? Before they slaughter the cow, I grew up on a cattle ranch, we want that cow to eat a lot. We want that cow to get fat because weight means more money for that cow to go to slaughter. And so here's what happens with judgment At some point, the Lord relents and says, I will give you over to self-indulgence. I will give you over to materialism. And you're just heaping more and more judgment upon yourself the more self-indulgently you live. When we think about lavish lifestyles, it's really easy in my mind to go, well, I live in a four-bedroom house, and the guy in the neighborhood and the different zip code, he lives in a six-bedroom house. And the guy in the six... Six-bedroom house goes, I'm not living lavishly because there's a guy with an eight-bedroom house. An eight-bedroom guy with a house says, I'm not living lavishly and self-indulgent because there's somebody else that's living in a ten-bedroom house. And we do that in our minds, don't we? This doesn't apply to me, but I'm not self-indulgent. There are plenty of people out there that have more. So we kind of go through this relative thing in our mind to go, well, so-and-so has more. That's where I get I know that's where you get, but we tend to dismiss extravagance. While many of us may not be like a wealthy landowner who is rich, the implication is that we are all rich in this culture, and this is a warning for you and a warning for me. It's not, I don't mean to say, and I hope you're not hearing this, it's not a bad thing to enjoy the finer things of life. But if your lifestyle is all about the finer things of life, you ought to ask the question, right? I'm not asking you to live in a tiny house, necessarily. I'm not asking you to do that with your five children. That's not the implication. The heart issue is the issue in this. It is a call to take inventory of our lives. Are we living above our means? If so, why? Why? Is our consumer debt high? I'm necessarily talking about a mortgage that everybody lives with, but is your consumer debt high that might be pointing towards something in your life that needs work? Is there evidence of living above your means? Are you able to be generous toward heavenly tied things? Your church, missionaries, gospel growth in this world. And if you gave your friend your checkbook, would they walk away after looking at it and say, this is a generous person. Those are tough, tough questions for us to ask. They say much about where we are in the continuum of materialism and greed versus generosity. So you see the progression. Do you guys see the progression here in this text? You see hoarding to hoard. You see taking and cheating other people. You see exuberant, extravagant lifestyle. How far are some greedy people willing to take it though? Look at verse 6. This is rough. How far are they willing to take it? To stay on top. This is what James says. Verse 6. This is eerie. Verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the righteous. The word righteous there means innocent or forgiven. Be Christian. And he does not resist you. He doesn't resist you because he can't. Flip back a couple of chapters James has talked about the wealthy and the poor a couple of times. He does it in chapter 2 where he says, don't be partial to the person who works in, walks into your church and has nice clothes on versus the poor person who doesn't, right? You shouldn't be partial in the church. If you go to chapter 2, look at verse 5 and 6, and here's what he says. This is a little background to help us understand um, this verse in verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. That sounds heavy. What does he mean? Listen, my beloved brothers. Chapter 2, verse 5. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Verse six is key. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who, what's the next word? Oppress you. Are the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? See, here's your point. The greedy person is even willing to, to oppress and harm other people to get what they want. That's heavy. And James 2 gives us the background. In that day, the wealthy, who could pay off the judge, who could have the best lawyers, would falsely bring the righteous into court, and even to the point of those casings turning into the death of one of these people. That is what verse 6 is saying. The rich got richer, the poor got poorer. Next week, again, we're we're not getting there today. Part of me wanted to put the next passage in here so we could get to the response of the poor. We're going to get to it next week. You'll probably be surprised. probably be surprised if the culture were to look at the next text. They would say, it's not enough. It's not enough, James. Your answer is not enough. It's not loving enough. But I'm going to leave that to next week. There's a TV show that I've been trying to watch for a while. Anybody seen Downton Abbey? I'm going to throw myself under the bus here. Downton Abbey. So like the male version of Downton Abbey is Poldark. Anybody seen Poldark? All right, spoiler alert. If that's on your list to watch, you can find it on Amazon. You can find it on Netflix. So I'm not going to spoil the whole thing, but I'm going to give you two characters in that show, Poldark. It's set after the Revolutionary War. Captain Ross Poldark comes back an Englishman comes back to Cornwall. He comes from a family of wealth. and that day, there are the haves and the have-nots. That's it. Comes from a family of wealth, war hero, but he did not prize wealth. He was not a man who prized wealth. As a matter of fact, he had a, a mine in which he cared for the workers so much he would give out of his own if the mine went south, and he would care for people. He even got into politics and went to par- parliament to care for the people to care for their needs because the common man was oppressed many times in that culture. But a boy who he went to school with growing up, George Warleggan. Man, he's the guy, George Warleggan's the guy, you know, in the show, you just want to wring his neck, he's that guy. And the whole thing, George Warleggan, he hates Ross because they have very different values. He doesn't come from much money, but he certainly prizes wealth and status. And when I think of this text, George Worleggan is a picture of a person, quasi-person, in a show. A person who is willing to hoard riches for riches' sake. To cheat people out of money. To cheat people out of labor that they've earned. He was a man who was willing to oppress and yet all the while live extravagantly. And you know what? In the end, he didn't lose everything necessarily, but he, he, he lost everything dear to him. The relationships, the people, the things that mattered, he lost. He was a greedy person, even willing to oppress and harm others and step on people to get what he wanted. I'm not saying that any of us are like George Warleggan to that extent. But when push comes to shove... Are you willing to step on other people sometimes to get what you want? There's clearly a difference. In business world, there's clearly a difference, right? In being competitive and being competitive and, and, and doing your best to try to get the sale. But are you willing to step on other people to get what you want? There's a fine line there, isn't there? So, there's a lot of warning in this passage as we look through it. There's a warning for us. James pulls no punches with it. Out of love for his church, what kind of treasure do you seek? You know, maybe the best prescription in scripture that we can find comes from Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 21. I want to show you the picture, uh, another picture of our fire, if we have it. So that's across the fence. And my my neighbor had a uh, zero-turn mower. It was like five grand. It was like his pride and joy. And you don't see it anymore because it's gone. See, that's what happens with earthly possessions, with earthly riches. In the end, that's what's going to happen with our stuff and the possessions that we work so hard for. But look at this passage. This is a great perspective for you and for me as we think about the material world that we live in and the temptations that we struggle with with the glitter of the world. Look at this. I love this. Matthew chapter 6, a great prescription for us. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But, contrast, lay up for yourselves treasure where? Not on the earth, in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys or where thieves do not break in and steal. Looks like James borrowed from Jesus, right? For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You know how we think? follow your heart no see our heart follows our treasure and so my takeaway for you from this text today is simply this what treasure are you chasing are you chasing earthly treasure that fades or heavenly treasure that never fades listen the greatest treasure that you could chase the treasure that you will absolutely be satisfied in is not stuff, it's a person. See, the greatest treasure is Jesus Himself. A generous God offering His Son, Jesus, on a cross for you and a cross for me. He's the treasure. So even when you get to heaven and you see a heaven paved with gold, the best thing about heaven is not the streets of gold. The best thing about heaven is you're in the presence of God. And His Son, Jesus, who has paid the ultimate price for you and been ultimately generous for you that you might experience the riches of His grace in the gospel that Christ would die on a cross for you and pay the penalty of sin for you that you can't pay that you might have forgiveness and eternal life. And you can live today experiencing the treasure of Christ and what He gives to you. There are no material possessions that compare with the treasure of Christ. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. This is a hard word in James chapter 5. A hard warning, but a good warning, because you love us. want us be reminded of the temptations that we face, face with materialistic things and, and the, the greed that can swell up in our flesh and our heart. Remind us of the treasure of Christ. A treasure that satisfies now, ultimately satisfies And through your spirit, help us ward off through the power of your spirit the temptations that we face each and every day. We love you. We thank you for time together. In Jesus' name, amen.